Hello and welcome to the Modern Britain podcast, the student show where I, Harry Talfan, and my good friend Jack Clark explore the political issues facing modern Britain. Today we had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Evans, the Labour Cooperative MP for Islawan, who has served his constituency since 2010. As of May 2021, the Welsh MP has taken on the additional responsibility as Shadow Minister for Defence Procurement. In our conversation, we touched on a variety of subjects, from the cost of living crisis to youth and employment. Me and Jack both really enjoyed today's recording, and we really hope you will too. Thank you very much for tuning in. Chris Evans, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Good morning. I thought, similar to my previous conversation with Hilary Benton, we could go straight into the unfolding situation in Ukraine. Obviously, as Shadow Minister for Defence Procurement, you've been monitoring this issue pretty closely. So I wondered whether you could outline Labour's position on how the UK should be responding to this issue. I think um, the issue with Ukraine is is deeply serious, and it's a serious issue, especially with Russia lining up uh, troops along the border of the Ukraine. Ukraine is a sovereign state, um, should be supported. Um, and also, I think this idea that Russia trying to stop um, Ukraine's uh, membership of NATO is wrong. NATO has been there as a, as a protector of peace since the Second World War, um, and its interests should be protected. My huge concern about this, obviously, going forward is that we don't want to see um, any sort of um, disturbance in Europe or any sort of um, any sort of any sort of war in, in the in, within Europe and also you think as well in terms of Ukraine we have Poland border there as well they are a member of NATO and we need to um, we need to protect their interests as well so I hope this can be resolved with a diplomatic process but we are supportive of um, of of of, um, of any any moves to bring this to a swift conclusion. Absolutely. And whilst we're talking about the role of the military currently, I thought we could also just talk about the the problems facing the military more generally. Um, So, for example, Labour recently um, have outlined that 30 billion may have been wasted since 2010 by the Ministry of Defence. But also similar accusations have been made by the Conservatives at the previous Labour government, um, labelling a black hole of 40 billion on failed military projects. And I just wondered on that uh, sort of duality of issue for both parties, does this suggest that possibly the issue is closer to the fast-moving development of technology rather than the particular failings of this government, or do you think it, it is a particular issue with this government? I think it's, a, it's pretty much a cheap shot. It's a bit desperate. You know, we're now we're 12 years since the last Labour government. Whatever mistakes have been made in the MOD or whatever waste has been in the MOD, that is on the government's watch. They can try and blame, blame whoever they want, but it's them who have been making the decisions. I think what is clear is that very often announcements are made without uh, without much forethought. Um, I think that this is really troubling. We have a defence equipment plan now that's got a 16 billion per 16 17 billion pound black hole according to the National Audit Office, um, and the fact is that's the fourth year in a row, and there seems to be a lackadaisical response from the MD, which shrugs its shoulders and says there's nothing we can do about it. And if you read the small print of the National Audit Office um, reports, it does say when they are sending mistakes back, the, the MOD is shrugging their shoulders and just accepting it. And I think what needs to be looked at is the way these projects are being managed. I mean, for example, I don't want to get too technical, but most of these contracts are, are cost plus. So you have your contract, then you have the cost factored into it. So you're going to say, for example, I'm going to send a contract for £2 million, say, and my cost is going to be £2 million. I will factor the £2 million into it. 
But I think the, the huge issue is with the Ministry of Defence is um, I think they keep changing their mind as well. But what the real loser in all of this is not government, it's not the opposition, it's the troops on the ground don't get the equipment they promised. And then that leaves them at the disadvantage. And as we've opened this conversation with um, a, a potential problem in the Ukraine, I mean, do we really want to send our troops out there with obsolete equipment because we can't get our act together in terms of equipment? So I think the whole thing needs to be reformed. And I think sometimes, I think um, there's an old saying that uh, the MOD's eyes are bigger than their belly. You know, very often they want to make these announcements about shipbuilding, about tanks, about, uh, about space, and the money isn't there. Uh, I think these things need to be thought of. But again, and I'm going to, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this later, I'm sure, but the, the problem is you do have a, a a, a jingoistic prime minister who just wants to make the headline announcements and and forget about the consequences so i think that is it that's a huge issue as well yeah yeah definitely so um i was sort of relaying back to harry's point about sort of wasted government spending both the treasury and jacob Rees-Mogg recently have been very vocal in criticizing the prime minister's 10-point environmental plan i was wondering what were your thoughts on this government's current environmental policy I think, I think again, with everything with this government, it's, it's there's a lot of great announcements that sort of make people feel good, and then there's no money, there's no beef. Um, and, you know, it's all very well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, criticising the environmental uh, policies. Um, at the end of the day, we are in the middle of a climate crisis, whether we like it or not. Climate change is here. But, you know, you've got to look at the wider issue of uh, Ministry of Defence. I mean, I was on the Public Council Committee for five years, the amount of waste that went on there is unbelievable. And I use a Welsh, a Welsh example. They were going to electrify the, um, the, the line between uh, Swansea and London to knock half hour off journey times. Um, they were, um, the project was overrun by 1.2 billion. It was, it was, it was paused. Not a, single tr- not a single yard of track was laid. And yet they wasted 1.2 billion. And what could they have done with that? So I think, I think it's very easy to a certain, to a certain, uh, to a certain, part of society to say, oh, green taxes are terrible, we must get rid of them. I think what really needs to happen is, you know, we need to start getting our spending in order. And there's another example as well, I've just come to mind. I mean, the furlough scheme, which kept a lot of people in work, but a lot of it was, uh, they lost four billion due to fraud and error. So I think really government needs to take a lot, hard, long look at itself, at the way these managers all sorts of projects, which is not happening at the moment. It just makes a mockery of this idea that the Tories run the economy better than Labour does, you know? Yeah, it's a very fair point. I guess you can also touch upon the sort of uh, the money wasted on the track and trace scheme and things like that. But mm-hmm. also bringing it back to sort of the point of the, the environment, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the sort of the COP26 meeting at Glasgow recently. Obviously, scientists have labelled the 1.5 degree rise as optimum to prevent a climate disaster. But the pledges made at COP26 only restricted to a 2.4 degree rise. Would you label the sort of meeting a failure or do you think there are still some positives to take away from it? I wouldn't say the meeting was a failure. The fact they met anyway and it was taken seriously was important. I think the, the, the huge issue is where we are as a country is it is difficult to meet any, any sort of targets that we set. I mean, for example, you know, we got to invest, you know, 28 billion per year until 2013 to, ta- to tackle this. You know, and but the, the the positive of this, we talk about, you know, there's a lot of negative things in the press, but we can create green jobs to do that as well, you know. And also, you know, we've got to, you know, if you're looking at supporting 
um, you know, fighting climate change. We've got to look at that within the sort of overseas aid budget. We've cut that as well, you know, and, and how can we allow them to tackle climate change and the, the problems around that if we're not, if, we, if we're cutting the, the, cut in the, uh, the overseas aid budget? And also, I think, you know, we've got to ensure that sort of uh, we've got to pressure these big polluters as well. You know, we've got to fear, you know, ultimately it all comes down to one thing which we've known all the way through. And we've got to cut down on fossil fuels. But I think the big issue with all of this is we've got to get business on board. And I don't think business is on board at the moment. So we've got to we've got to mobilize businesses behind climate action as well. But we have to put a positive spin on these things, you know. Absolutely. I think just on that is that issue that you've raised there about the big polluters, it's been really interesting seeing this uh, response from both parties to the rise in energy bills. Um, and I saw you speaking on GB News about the need to scrap VAT um, on these. You were the one, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. I think I think you made a, you made a really good point actually of linking it to Brexit, and obviously for an audience that probably largely does vote Brexit, that was a really important point to make. So I just wonder, what, why do you think the Conservatives have been so reluctant to take that step? Well, it's straightforward. Energy bills go up. Um, that means there's more take for the Treasury. It's, it's quite straightforward. I mean, VAT is supposed to be a tax that you decide to pay where, uh, decide to pay rather than be taxed at source. So simply, if you walk into a shop and you want the latest tele- television or electrical goods, you decide whether you want to buy it or not. So as long as the energy prices are going up, that means there's more tax take for the government. But I think yesterday, the fact that BP had, it was on Monday, so BP had nine billion pounds of profit. I mean, surely just taxing, even if you set the rate of a windfall tax of 10%, can you imagine um, the projects that you could, uh, you, could uh, you could finance with that type of money? Can you imagine the discount you'd give on energy's people, people's energy bills just by, just by windfall tax? And it's, it's it seems interesting to me reading the financial press that the most of their profit has come from the last three months because of the um, because of the volatility of the of the energy markets. And it's interesting as well, you know, we we start this conversation on Ukraine. The real the real winners of the Ukraine situation is um, the energy companies because the there's going to be an onus. Uh, Russia is going to produce is going to affect on the natural gas gas prices. They're going to go up again. As can see, higher energy bills as well. So I think there's a huge issue here, you know, a geopolitical issue that you know that, that we have to address. And are you are you disappointed in that German response? Because obviously a lot of people um, from people people that were previously Remainers or that really want unity within Europe have uh, expressed discontent at Germany's willingness to go ahead with Nord Stream two, despite the fact that they knew Vladimir Putin and 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 some of the things he'd been up to. Um, do you do you think retrospectively that was a regrettable de- decision? Yeah. My view is, my view is, Harry. You know, practicalities of this is if you are if you are buying most of your natural gas from from Russia, you are going to be in a situation where you're in hock to them, and that's where the Germans find themselves. Is this political situation? Do they condemn condemn Vladimir Putin, or do they they go ahead with this? And I think the the fact of the of the pipeline, as you say, that you know, it is it is a very difficult situation for them. But again, it's the fact that we are still addicted to fossil fuels. But again, as I said, that it's very well it's going on about you know fossil fuels. This is going to take time, and we need huge investment in renewals. And I think that's what we need to start looking at, to be honest. I mean, Norway's in a situation now where apparently it's up to its limit on producing natural gas. So sooner or later, we're going to find some alternatives somewhere. 
And I, th I think that the, the issue around energy and obviously the rising price in energy speaks more broadly to the sort of the rising price of living crisis that we're facing in the UK. Mm. Um, and I know, I know, Jack, you wanted to ask a specific issue on youth and employment on this issue, didn't you? Yeah, so I was going to say, so the current rise of the price of living and the sort of current youth, unempro youth unemployment problem, which we've got, which I know affects your constituents, mm. what are the sort of projects mm. and things we can do currently to support the young people in society? I think in terms of supporting young people, I think, you know, I think what needs to happen is there needs to be some sort of, the, the huge issue that I've always noticed, even when I was young myself, which I always think wasn't that long ago, and I look back and it was a long time ago now, so, <laughs> but I, I always think it's about experience and it's ensuring that people um, have, you know, when in terms of offered, especially for the big companies, they're paid, and they are offered competitively as well in terms of graduates to the, the, pe the best people get those chances as well. But I also think the huge issue in this country as well is we don't talk about entrepreneurship enough. You know, we're very well now Thursday, it's Thursday as we speak now and, 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 and at nine o'clock tonight, every eight and nine o'clock tonight, you've got Dragon's Den and then followed by The Apprentice. Everybody loves the idea of setting up in business. But I think a lot of people find it's a very difficult thing to do. Everybody has a good idea. And I think what we need to do in terms of young people is especially to our schools and through our universities, we need to encourage entrepreneurship and make it look like it's accessible. So that means getting out there, business people getting out there and talking about their successes and things like that. And I think, but if we don't have that level of entrepreneurship or people starting businesses as well, is that we don't have a future. And so I think we need to make it easy. We need to give uh, people the confidence and the skills to start setting their own businesses up as well. But equally, I think what we need to realize as well is I think as people move through jobs, I think they need to be um, a sense of, of, of upskilling as well, that ensuring everybody who starts a job, whatever the job is, you know, they do, they are, there is some sort of an hour and investment in training and skills and things like that. And I think that's the way, the way forward. Again, it's another tough one. It usually is the young people who are, bear the brunt of unemployment. So, I mean, but again, it comes down to the fact that this is a lack of long-term forethought and investment by the government. Sort of building on that idea as well, do you think that maybe one of the problems is that the, currently the young people, or especially in schooling and education, are pushed through this narrative of university and university graduation is the only sort of option. There's very little sort of advertisement in product, like in the right areas, advertising apprenticeships and alternatives to these sort of mm. this university path. I, I think I think I was the very, you know I went I went to university in the mid nineties so I think I was the very first of that generation that was, was drummed into me from very early on that you must go to, you don't must you go to university now for me it was all right because I was never very good at that <laughs> I was never good on hands anyway but I think I think you know we do tend to look down there's two problems I think with this number one we tend to look down on apprenticeships and voc vocational education and I think that needs to change so we need to actually start looking at those those kids in school are very good vocationally and start developing their skills at an early age. The second point, apprenticeships need to be reformed. I remember a couple of years ago, I, I came back from Spain and I was listening to um, Virgin Radio as well and said, oh, this tremendous apprenticeship uh, radio production. I thought, that's a really good. I thought if I was young, I'd want to do that. And then he found out it was a six month placement. Well, that's not an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship is five years where you learn your trade. So I think there needs to be a huge reform of where we see apprenticeships and what we offer. Traineeships are not apprenticeships. Six months placements are not apprenticeships. You learn your trade at the end. And I think, you know, there needs to be more investment in those sort of things. And um, and like I said, I think what we need to do in schools as well is, as I said, touch on the entrepreneurship angle as well, but also touch on the, the vocational schools as well. And what I would say as well is, you know, 
why don't we have an alternative to GCSEs and A-levels where you have a vocational qualification that is the gold standard? I think that is, that is probably the way forward. But again, it's, it's investment and it's political will, which hasn't been there for the last 12 years, I don't think. And obviously, Labour might get that opportunity to give that political will uh, that, you know, we don't know yet, but there could be an election reasonably soon in the next couple of years. Um, heading into the next election, what do you really hope to see Labour focusing on? I think what we've got to do, you know, there's, there's, there's two, there's a trap there, a bear trap, really, that it's always very easy to um, to think just because everybody hates the Tories, Boris is incompetent, you can't possibly vote for a clown like him, you know what I mean? But the fact is we have to have a compelling narrative. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the 92 election. It was the very first election I ever stood in. And we thought, well, this is a huge recession. John Major was a terrible prime minister, very weak. He still won. The reason was we didn't give people a reason to vote. And what we need to do is give people that compelling reason to vote. And even, you know, we talked about the Blair situation from 97. No, Blair just had the weight, they were all imploding. The fact is, there was a competitive narrative. And I think the narrative I would like to see is, look, let's have a, a focus on hard work Let in the, in the sense of if you've got the skills and the talent and you're willing to work hard, then you deserve success. That we that each of us have a responsibility to each other. But, and we put that together in a set of policies which are compelling. I think, to be honest with you, the huge issue, that, Harry, and it's difficult, the only way we can do that is, as I said, a huge um, investment in those areas which feel left behind, you know, areas like mine, which are, which, which, um, which are, have suffered from post-industrial, post-industrialization. And I think we need to attract new businesses coming in as well. But we need to give people a sense of hope that there is some, if by voting in Labour, they are voting for a better life. And we need to have that. And I think that compelling vision of everybody having the same opportunities, um, the same opportunities, but, uh, but the emphasis on being rewarded for hard work, I think. Absolutely. And I just I just wanted to pick up on that issue of unity, because I, I've, I've seen you writing that um, whether it's Brexit or COVID, it feels as though society is losing its ability to tolerate other ways of thinking. I think that's a really interesting point. But I just wonder what, what what you make of the argument that obviously a lot, a lot of that responsibility has to be taken by the left as well, you know, through um, whether it's previous leadership or whether it's this issue around censorship that we see spoken a lot about at the moment, or even, you know, some argue about vaccine mandates so that, that shuts down that opportunity for choice. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, that this issue also has to be taken on by the left of bringing them together? Or, or do you feel at the moment it's really being pushed by the right, this issue? I don't, I don't even think it's a right-left issue. I think it's so fragmented and disparate. I think everybody's got a different agenda. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, I think in the, in, the, in the short term, I think social media has, has, a, has a part to play in that. I think what has happened in the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years, or maybe 20 years, I think what's happened is you always have the pub bore or, you know, the, the guy down the union with his boorish views and everybody would ignore him. Suddenly now he goes on the internet and there's somebody in Tallahassee or, or, or Idaho or Ohio or in Berlin who agree with him and he thinks he's legitimate. And I think what's actually happened, I think there was two issues really that I would that I would historically hang my hat on what's happened here. First of all, the financial crash came along. The left then believed that everybody was Marxists and and we you know and and pursued a left wing agenda. The second was Brexit in the terms that the right wing felt that um they were legitimized. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That they felt that their views were legitimized so they could say whatever they wanted to. And I think that's where the split has come from. And I think what you have an issue of now is we are shouting so much at each other, we're not actually listening to what anybody says anymore. 
and we're so entrenched in our views, you know, that it's that it's difficult to break through that. I think where do we get unity from? Where do we find common ground? I think we've got to get to a point eventually where we realise, you know, we are all inhabit this small island. We all breathe the same air. We have more in common than we we don't, and we start listening again. And I think, you know. I think it gets back to the issue as well of the way politics has been conducted. I would say it started with David Cameron hurling personal insults, going as low as possible, and it and it's and it's played out by Boris Johnson now making all sorts of right wing tropes on uh, at the dispatch box, which I think is sad for people like you, Jack, who might want to go into politics. You know, good people might be deterred because just don't want the abuse, and that's that's the problem we have going forward. I think. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on. Um you're uh, on the you're uh, talking about social media there i wanted to ask how will the sort of the the labor government of the future go about handling these big tech companies and the sort of multinational tech companies where governments have been so backwards in sort of uh, gathering tax or regulating them which has led to some of the problems about uh, division how will the sort of labor government go about handling them I, th- I think it's a huge issue that, that you know this isn't going to be solved by any national government, not by UK government, not by American government or German government. This is going to be an international issue. We have to tackle them head on. They are international companies. I mean, if you got if you got the head of of, of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, and uh, Elon Musk, but being able to build rockets, you see the type of of riches they have. This is mega riches. This is you know Bonville territory, if you like, you know, and and call it Bonville as well. But you know what I mean? It's that territory. So I think what we have to do is we have to have an international response to this. You know, you can't, and the problem with the other issue we've got with this is that I could say something to you now, you know, all right, we'll, we'll blanket tax and we'll have what China's got and we'll, we'll put a filter on and, and you can only see what's on the internet. The fact is technology moves so quickly that any solution I may came up, might come up with now will be obsolete within probably by four o'clock this afternoon. That's, that's, that's the world we live in. So I think what we need to do is we need to, I think we need to have a, a real, you know, we are, we've come together of COP26, you know, and I think we need to have that same sort of drive to come together to tackle these these social media and tech companies head on because they operate in the international sphere and government's going to do exactly the same thing, I think. On techn- technology moving so quickly, as you just referenced, things can, you know, they can go out of date so quickly. Um, do you think this is one of the key challenges facing the British military moving forward into the 20s and 30s? Is this the key challenge? Yes, it is definitely. I mean, what we've got, you know, you're gonna war is already being waged in the cyberspace and has been for the last couple of years. You're gonna have more drones. You're gonna more. Um, you're gonna have more um, sort of uh, pilotless planes and things like that. And that then brings into this idea that there's gonna be somebody sitting in a command center in Abbey Wood controlling a a a plane in a theatre the other side of the world you know so i think there's all sorts of issues coming in there as well and because we move to that technology and also i think what i'm very interested in is machine learning and cybernetics robotics this is all going to come into the military field very soon as well so i think there's also going to be moral issues we're going to have to unpick as well but also when those come in we are going to be more susceptible to uh, to cyber attacks than ever before but I think the big issue we're not talking about the government at the moment is COVID-19. And in terms of COVID-19, what I would say, why would I mention our defence base? What COVID-19 did was something that 9-11 didn't manage, that 7-7 didn't manage, in the fact it brought our way of life to a pause, a complete stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I was a, if you're a, if you're a foreign government, 
you're going to look at that, or a non-state actor, you're going to look at that and think, look, um, bombs and guns and terrorist attacks haven't worked, but biological warfare has. And I think this is the issue that the real challenge that we've not come round to yet is that in future, I think we're going to see not only more cyber attacks, cyber attacks are already going on anyway, but I think there's a real danger of biological warfare. And I think government is not prepared for that. And, and not just this government, but I think governments across the world have not woke up to the fact that you can you can bring about a virus and actually bring the world to a stop, a way of life to stop. So I think that's a, if you're talking about future challenges in, in defense, I think that is the major challenge now is how how biological how biological warfare is real and it's a real threat and we've got to wake up to that. I think. Now I'll be careful to uh, compliment him uh, too much, considering you've compared him to Bond. But uh, I'll just bring up again that issue of AI. Uh, Elon Musk has said that one of the, one of the issues with artificial intelligence specifically is that the regulation comes after the production of the product so you get these things that uh, could could have the potential to change our way of living but the legislation to limit their influence comes 10 years after it and it's too late you know people make the same comparisons with uh, seatbelts you know the legislation on it came 10 years after we found out that we needed them yeah. um and i wondered is that something is that something that the the british government can focus on can we can we look to bring together the international community to set up these um, these groups that could that can regulate these industries in time before they before they affect our way of living. I just want to go on record. I didn't call Elon Musk a Bond villain. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> I said it's a lichen, a lichen, I just want to get key, out right. key okay. difference. <laughs> yeah, I think, no, I think I think Elon Musk is absolutely right. The problem is the machinery government is so slow. I mean, the, the, the trouble is you could bring in a a, a a bill tomorrow. The regulation on I don't know, regulation on Facebook, say right. By by the time that gets through the machinery and the commands and the, the, the report stage and it goes to Lords, Facebook is gone and everybody's moved on to TikTok. It's not even a threat anymore. See what I mean? Right? So I think I think the you I think Elon Musk is absolutely right. I think what we need is some sort of international body that regulates this. I mean, to me, if you go to tech companies, I don't know, I've gone to a lot of tech companies as well in the past as well, and they are huge into machine learning. They already, these companies are so far ahead of government in terms of machine learning, governments are just waking up to it. These tech companies have been working on this for 10 years. I mean, what does machine learning mean? When does the human become, there's at a point where we might be talking here, the human is obsolete. Now, I'm, I'm, I love the Terminator films. Are we going to be in a situation where we were at the end of uh, Terminator Genesis? You know, that's what I, or Judgment Day, that's what, that's what I asked. But I think going forward, again, this is, I think maybe what we're actually talking about today, you know, is more of an international response rather than just a national response to these things. You know what I mean? Of course. And I think we're just coming to the end now. It's been really great speaking to you. I just thought we'd close um, with the, the key question on everyone's mind in British politics at the moment. Obviously, you brought up at the start of the interview the uh, the failings of Boris Johnson in recent weeks. I just wondered whether you sum up where you, where you think this is heading. You know, are we, are we really going to face weeks and weeks more of... Uh, further controversy, further comments, or, or, or do you see this issue coming to a head pretty soon? I think I think what you're going to look at is Boris Johnson is a, is a is a is a strange, weird fella, really strange. I mean, in terms of the reason, I, the reason I say that to you is this: I don't want to compare him to Trump, right? But I, I, I you know Trumpian phrase on this. But Trump became president because he wanted to be more famous than he already is, right? 
Johnson became Prime Minister because he wants to be loved and wants to be liked. And I thought what I find absolutely amazing about Johnson is every Prime Minister to have a specific area of interest they're obsessed by, you know, Gordon Brown, economics, Blair, social justice, you know, Theresa May even was, was you know, very interested again in social justice as well. They have these pet projects they're very obsessed with and obsessive about, you know. Johnson doesn't have that. He has very little interest in economics. He has no interest in economics, even though he's he's overseeing you know the highest tax rates ever. He has no real interest in law and order. But what he's very interested in is these these party pieces where he's prancing about. And I think Johnson's absolute burning desire, pathological desire to be liked, leads into dishonesty in the sense that Harry, Jack, something's happened. You're not going to like. But I don't want to tell you about it because you don't you blame me and don't like me for it. So I'm gonna lie about it. And then when you when you and then when you uncover it, which probably wasn't as serious as as as, as you thought it was, I'll lie against you. And I think what I worry about going forward really is the way that Johnson has absolutely, you know, we've had an, uh, I've already touched on as well, since 2008, you know, there has been politics has been dragged through the mud and I just think Johnson is just really now uh, while it sway bailing around in the mud no one want to do and I think you know his issue is he wants to stay on that's clear but he believes also believes he has this strange belief that that election result in 2019 wasn't about the Tory party it was about him this is his personal mandate therefore he's not going anywhere and I think the problem is for the Tories going forward I think there will be. I think personally, I think he will. I think he will hang on, and I think, um, I think what the Tory backbenchers have got to realise is, at some stage, um, they have to they have to go to the doorsteps and defend this man and defend his lies and defend his dishonesty, and how much longer can that go on?